Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. I am so pleased today to introduce Brad Ellingbow. He's an award-winning composer and arranger of choral music, and he's a sought-after conductor and clinician, and as of today, has published over 160 works. Um, His works have been performed by chorales all over the country and all over the world. They've been performed in Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Great Britain, and all across Europe. And he has graciously agreed to talk with us today about composing. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I was wondering if you could start out by explaining how you got interested in music and how your music career started. Well, it's a bit of a funny story, I I think so. <laughs> Anyhow, um, when I was a small kid, I was quite musical, and it just seemed very normal to me. Yeah, we all think that however we are is sort of how everyone else is. And I have a brother who's 10 years older, and he once stopped me. I was about five, and he said, what are you humming? And I said, the harmony to such and such. And he said, where's the melody? And I said, in my head. And he looked at me very strangely, and I thought, what's so odd about that? But I I think (laughs) that was fairly unusual. So music came easily for me, and I did not do much with it for a long time. Uh, When I was in high school, I played sports, and uh, I did play trumpet in the band, but I only got involved in the choir as a senior in high school. And then I went to St. Olaf College, which, of course, has a famous uh, department of music, but the ironic thing was I went to St. Olaf and I was going to be a business major and I was going to play football. And I hurt my knee right before freshman year, not terribly, but enough to keep me from trying out for the football team that fall. And I had enjoyed choir in high school and I thought, well, let let me try this choir thing more in college. And uh, the famous choir that tours, you can't be in as a freshman, but um, I got into the choir under that and really enjoyed it. And then I decided, well, at the end of my freshman year, I will try out for the touring choir. And if I make it, then that's what I'll do. And if I don't, then I'll get ready for football. And I made it, and I loved it, and I ended up becoming a music major. And so the world lost a very mediocre football player at that point. (laughs) So what happened after that? Then I went on to the Eastman School of Music, and I was a voice major there, um, vocal performance. And at one point, looking for compliments, I said to my teacher, do you think I have what it takes to be a singer? And... Uh, I thought she'd say, oh, well, you sing very well and and things like that. Well, she looked me right in the eye and said, I don't know. Can you imagine doing anything else with your life? You know, it kind of scared me because I I sort of could. You know, I, uh, I went to school with people who went into medicine, went into computers, went into physics, and thought of myself as a person that was fairly well rounded. But now, in retrospect, I see that this was the only thing I really could have done. So when she asked you that, how long did it take for you to realize, oh, okay, no, music is what I want to do? About 40 years. Oh, 
<laughs> I just, uh, she was very wise. I was very fortunate uh, to study with Jan DeGaetani, who was very well known, uh, but unfortunately gone now since 1989. She died of cancer, uh, but mm. had a big career and was a wonderful teacher. And um, she used to say, you know, the contest is only with yourself. Can you get a little bit better today than you were yesterday. It's not against anyone else. I've tried to live by that. Hmm. So you were a vocal performance. So where did conducting and composing come into all of that? Well, actually at St. Olaf, I was a composition major. Oh, okay. But then singing seemed to be something I was pretty far ahead in. So then I went to Eastman uh, thinking I would be a, some kind of performing singer. And, uh, and then while I was at Eastman and, you know, entered under those auspices, I uh, also took up conducting and got a degree in conducting as well. Oh, wow. You know, the perpetual boy who doesn't know what he wants to be when he grows up. <laughs> then just decides to master all of them. You've got the football, you've got the conducting, the singing, composing. What's left? Oh, I guess you could keep on going with the trumpet, I suppose. <laughs> no, no, I'm afraid I have mastered nothing, but I keep trying. <laughs> I think that's arguable. Um, okay. So after school, how did the professional career develop at that point? Well, I was tired of school and uh, was needing to make some money, and I got a job offer at a little school in Mississippi. And I went there and started my teaching career, and I taught there for two years. And then uh, this job opened up at the University of New Mexico that I thought would be you know, the next step. And I ended up staying at the university for 30 years. And uh, they were very open to me being a bit of a jack of all trades. So I came primarily uh, to teach voice, but also conducted one choir. And then I became the head of the voice area. And I sang quite a bit. I sang about 25 concerts a year in those days. Oh, wow. Then I started to become more and more interested in conducting. And my colleague retired as the head of the choral program. And I proposed to the faculty that instead of them hiring someone to replace him, that I replace him and they hire someone to replace what I was doing. So then I ended the last 10 years of my career as the director of choral activities. And then you were composing on the side as well? Or were you composing for your own choir? What, how did that all work in there? Um, the Germans have this word, Gebrauchsmusik, uh, music for use. And I ended up, you know, I would need something. For example, in my very first job, I had the choir there too. And I thought I'd make an arrangement of Away in a Manger. And, and really, there are three tunes, although two of them I, I prefer more than the third. And one is... Mm-hmm. Away in a manger. And the other one is, Away in a manger, no crib. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't decide between those two tunes. And so I made an arrangement that went forth and back between them. Then I sent it in and it got published and it sold kind of a lot of copies. And then they uh, said, Hey, send us some more stuff. And actually, the very first piece I published, I got one 
royalty check for two dollars and nineteen cents, and then the company went out of business. So I oh. <laughs> think maybe I killed them. But the, the second, <laughs> the, I still have that check because it's always a reminder to not be too proud of myself. And the, <laughs> the second piece I published though sold a lot of copies, and then I kept going from there. That was nineteen eighty nine. So that's mm. a while ago. And you kept on doing it. And now you've done it 158 more times. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about choral music? Because you have written so much and it's almost exclusively for choir and choral. I mean, I guess music for use is a lot to do with it. But in order to write that much, you have to really, really love it. What is it about the choir and about the human voice that really inspires you to keep on writing for it? That is a very good question. Certainly, there are a lot of um, things that one can do with a symphony orchestra or a combination of voice and instruments. And I have written a certain amount of solo music or uh, instrumental music. But I think the uh, answer to that would be my own training as a singer. Um, If I were to be so bold as to say, people have found that my vocal lines are very singable. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I play piano, not bad. I used to play trumpet. Uh, I had a pretty thorough education in how the orchestra works. But singing is my, you know, metier. It, it's it's my environment. And uh, I feel like I have more to say there. And I also have this, uh, well, it's a little bit of a love-hate relationship in a way, but um, there's the old canard that there are singers and musicians. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, raise my hand. Could we be considered musicians too? Um, and I know what people mean. They mean singers and instrumentalists. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that when people sing very, very well, they seem to be talking to you. And there is nothing between you and the singer. And if they're very good, if they're very efficient, the layperson says, my, aren't they talented? You know, um, and it's, you know, my point is, yeah, they are talented, but they work very hard to make it look that easy. Ultimately, though, because it doesn't seem to involve any strain, it's as if they're speaking to you and sharing their heart directly with you. It's an intimate thing like your friend unloading some burden or telling how much they're in love or whatever it is. And that kind of direct connection I find uh, most satisfying. And that's what that's what I'm always shooting for. Mm-hmm. Well, it also helps, I think, with singers. They're looking and making almost like an eye connection with their audience as well. That makes it easier for the audience to really connect with them. Yes, I think so. They, and they, you know, literally have language. So they are literally saying something to you. Mm-hmm. Well, that actually brings up a question that I had about your composing process. Do you start with a poem? Or do you start with the melody? How do you usually go about writing something? You know, there are almost as many answers to that as the pieces that I have. Each of them sort of gets born their own way. Sometimes I have a melody. I, you know, I keep a notebook and I write by hand and 
well, you know, this is kind of a good melody. And, and then um, somebody will commission me and uh, then we'll go back and forth about, uh, you know, we're having the installation of the college president or our church has turned 75 years old or something like that. And then we'll start to talk about texts and then we'll find a text that we agree on. And then sometimes I'll be looking through my notebook and go, you know what, this text kind of goes with this melody that I wrote down eight months ago. Uh, conversely, sometimes especially lately as I have started to write more advanced music, sort of because I can and because I've written an awful lot of Gebrauch's music, I'll find some poem that just, you know, really speak to me and I'll sit down and, and write a melody. Uh, to go further with your question, oftentimes I will take a text and write a melody like it was a song and then quote-unquote, arrange my melody. So, you know, if I make an arrangement of Away in a Manger or Silent Night, the tune was already there, and then I arranged it for choir. But sometimes I write my own tune mm -hmm. and then pretend it was somebody else's and arrange it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and then finally, sometimes I will... Um, I'm thinking of a piece, This is a Good World that I wrote in response to the shooting at the nightclub in Orlando three or four mm. years ago. And that just made me feel so bad. And I went and found a poem that, that seemed to me an, that even though things are so horrible that I was going to try and affirm things. And I sat down and I wrote that in about a day. And sometimes it takes me six weeks and sometimes it takes me two hours. Hmm. So that one was not a commission piece. That was something that came out of you in response to something. And that one just came straight from your heart. Yeah, um, exactly. But there's a lot of times that you are commissioned. Actually, um, I was looking down your resume and Johns Creek United Methodist Church is actually not far from here. We've worked with them oh. quite a bit and I, they've commissioned you a few yeah. times. We love them. I love them. They're wonderful people. Uh, yes. um, so when they commission a piece from you, like you said, it's a lot of times for an event or for some commemoration of some sort. Do they come to you and say, we would like this type of music or do they give you a lot of creative freedom? How does that usually work when you're writing for somebody else? It's kind of a negotiation and there's usually a letter of agreement between us that is probably would not stand up under any legal scrutiny, but uh, it's a little mm -hmm. bit of a written handshake. And that is, they will say, you know, we know your music because, you know, our church choir has sung many times, you know, pieces that you've written and we have a big event coming up. And after that, it can go in all directions. Like it's our 100th anniversary and we have an adult choir and a children's choir and a handbell choir and an organ and a piano and harmonica and ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> do they get that detail? Sometimes they do. And then I say, well, gosh, that's tremendous that you have such a program. But, uh, you know, you understand that I'm and I can do this. Uh, I would I can write for everybody that you just mentioned, but it would make the piece so unique that it probably would never be published because it would be so, I mean, nobody else would have 
all <laughs> seven things ready to do on a, a, a regular Sunday. So if that's okay with you, that's kind of a work made for hire. Mm-hmm. But if they say, you know, um, th- there was a choir about two years ago that said, our church is 60 years old, and there's one lady ha- who has sung in the church choir all 60 years. And now she's 85, and she's going to retire, and we'd just like to give her this gift. And so then we found a text that was meaningful to her, and I wrote this piece, and they sang it on her last Sunday. And then that came into print because it was for choir and piano on a text that wasn't uh, unusual and unique. And um, and so, you know, sometimes it's a work made for hire and sometimes mm-hmm. it is a uh, celebratory thing. And, and, and then I, I also say that even though you commissioned me, this is still my piece. But if it's published, we will agree this was written to honor Jane Doe, for her 60 years of faithful singing, Mm. you know, that kind of dedicatory uh, language can be negotiated too. I see. So you, but you keep the copyrights and all the rights to it still. I do. Yeah. That's part of, unless it's a work for hire. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually if it's a work for hire, I keep it as well, but I, I just tell them this will never probably get out into the wider world. And you yourselves are probably not going to get all those six groups together. I mean, it's just a lot of work, you know, so <laughs> that, so that's a church choir. Yeah. Sometimes I have a commission coming up with the uh, Albany Pro Musica that is probably going to be for chorus and orchestra. And uh, that is a different kind of challenge. That's a big thing to assemble, but choir and orchestra, even though that may be, I don't know, you know, 120 people, that's a fairly usual combination. Yes. Other groups are able to do that as well. Right. Has there ever been a time where you've given a piece to whoever's commissioned you and they just say, um, we, is there any way you can change this or this? Or th-? Like, do they give you notes sometimes or do you just not allow that? I think that has happened once. It, uh, that's also kind of part of the language that, you know, I have the final say on things, but mm. conversely... I'm a working musician, and so if I get a reputation out in the world of choir singing that, you know, my pieces are impossible or I'm uh, hard to work with, I like to think of myself as a craftsman. You know, if somebody Mm -hmm. wants to call me an artist, you know, that's great, but I I would be unlikely to say that about myself. Mm -hmm. I want to build something that the client wanted that I also am proud of. Yes. And it seems like that first initial brainstorming session you have with your client seems to be so important because the more details you can get from them and the more you can talk and get the idea of what they want, seems like that makes it so everybody's happier in the long run. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I through the years have commissioned some people uh, myself. And, you know, I say, you have to be honest. I mean, if you, if we stipulate this text and, and you don't like it or it doesn't excite you, you, you tell me now. Right. Otherwise we, yeah. you know, we, it's like we won the battle and lost the war. You know, there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with their piece, but the, 
was a little dull or it fell flat. And then we had spent a lot of money. And, and even at the premiere, everybody's like, huh, well, yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm sure that hasn't happened with your pieces. I've heard them. They're very good. There's no accounting for what other people like. I suppose so. I suppose so. <laughs> I was listening to a lot of YouTube videos of other choirs mm-hmm. playing your music and performing your music. And and so I was wondering also, do you enjoy hearing other conductors' interpretations? Or is that kind of hard to do? Maybe you're thinking, ah, that's not what I wrote. What do you, <laughs> what's your... Yeah, you know, the truth is it um, it cuts both ways. Well, I'll give you two examples. Um, The first example was the Santa Fe Desert Chorale, and I wrote a piece for them. And they sang it. Of course, they are a wonderful professional group of the, you know, first caliber. And I was at the performance, and I turned to my wife, and I said, that went better than it goes in my head. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was a a happy night. And uh, they had not asked me, to, you know, even though they're right up the road from me, they um, they hadn't asked my input. And so the uh, premiere was a surprise to me and it was a happy surprise. Then another time I was invited, I'm not going to mention names, but I traveled across the country and they did a big long work of mine and um, didn't ask for any input. And it really was, you know, it was a story badly told, I thought. I mean, mm. it wasn't just that they didn't hit all the notes. It was that they didn't really apprehend the total meaning. And uh, and then, you know, I just had to sit there and take it a little bit. It's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to... Um, loan you my child and now I'm going to watch while you waterboard them. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a little bit. I kind of want to stand up oh, so it was board. pretty pretty rough. Huh? Stop it. <laughs> yeah. So but you know I do have training as a performer and as uh-huh. much then um you know what well, I of course I exaggerate a little bit I like to tell yes. stories but nonetheless um I was not happy but my role at that point was to say something like, well, gosh, you know, that was, that was the, I've never heard it done that way before. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I something to say that was true and yet not insulting. <laughs> that must take a lot of restraint sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. So um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about inspiration because you are a conductor and you're a vocalist. So you have had a chance to perform and study lots of different types of music. What type of music do you find really influences your own composing? I'm afraid I'm a bit of an old fashioned romantic. So, you know, lyrical things, things with uh, an evocative melody. I, I love Puccini. I do favor the music of Grieg, and and that's a bit of a specialty of mine that I haven't necessarily done a lot with in recent years, and yet the the sort of uh, Nordic expression of, um, you know, the idea that there's quite a bit of passion behind restraint Mm -hmm. um, is... uh, 
is an important aesthetic to me. One thing I talk about a lot with my own choirs is, uh, you know, the hinting at the fact that, you know, I'm holding back wild horses. And I think one of the great actors of that sort is Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. You look at him in a, in a, he very rarely overacts. He's quite still. And yet you have this sense that underneath there could be tremendous emotion that he is just hanging on to because he thinks that's the classier thing to do. And so that that kind of aesthetic is one that I uh, kind of subscribe to. And, and I think, you know, some people are better at that kind of uh, expression than others. And by that token, sometimes people connect with my music more than other people do because they themselves prize that same sort of aesthetic. How do you create that with a choir? If you have a large group, how do you get them all to hold back those wild horses? You know, like how, how as a conductor do you mold that into a group? That is a, that is a lifelong pursuit because it's a fine line between holding back wild horses and just seeming like you don't care. You know, there has to yes. be. Um, <laughs> but I think once you show how strong you are, you know, how loud you can sing, as it were, then there's no more mystery left. And and so staying at the lower end of the dynamics, but still having a lot of color and tone and nuance uh, draws people in. So instead of sort of broadcasting to people and 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 clobbering them with your sound, you uh, dynamically invite them to sit forward on their seats. Mm. That's harder to do, and uh, it takes a lot of coiled energy on the part of the singer. Mm-hmm. and you're a clinician and you go and help other choirs achieve a really refined sound. Is that right? Well, yeah, I'm asked to come in and I, and I do my best <laughs> to have, uh, <laughs> help them achieve that. Uh, oftentimes it's in conjunction with my own music and, um, and like anything, you can never be a prophet in your own land. So sometimes, you know, somebody will have me in and I'll come up and say, you know, you should watch me all the time and you should really uh, be intent. And and then they say to their conductor, how come you never said this? And of course, they said it a thousand times, but I'm the guy of from out of town and it sticks. Um Yes. There's some yeah. of that too. Yeah. So you sometimes are just reinforcing what their own conductor is saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, is that what you'll be doing with Pro Music of the Summer? My task with that music festival will be to be the conductor of a high school festival choir and to help them um, in their own um, performance, but also prepare them for Beethoven's Ninth with the Philadelphia Orchestra, which is, of course, very exciting. Mm-hmm. A real chance for kids of that, well, for anybody, frankly. But um, so that is under the umbrella of Albany Pro Musica, but I won't be working with that chorus 
this summer. I'll work with them starting next year. Mm, so you'll be composing for Albany Pro Musica, but you'll be doing the the choir for the Pro Musica International Festival. That's right. Mm, well, that's exciting. Oh, yes, very much so. And I'm writing a new piece for the high school festival chorus. I'm working on that right now. Oh, you are? Yeah. So how difficult are you going to make it? I don't know yet exactly. I, I think <laughs> that uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to achieve several goals. And one is to challenge them to make them feel special. Well, I think they'll hopefully feel special anyhow that they're in that remarkable environment and get to be with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And then the fact that there are so many of them means that, you know, it's a little bit like driving a ocean liner instead of a speedboat, you know, so you don't want to try and turn on a dime all the time. But right. I do want it to be uh, rhythmic mm-hmm. uh, to engage their youthful sensibilities. And um, the the text is, is about inclusivity and uh, hate having no place in this world, um, which oh. is probably always timely, but seems particularly timely right now. Yes. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing some things that I haven't done before too. I'm going to have some, uh, they're going to do some percussion on their bodies. Uh, they're going to rub their hands together. They're going to uh, uh, beat time on the, on their thighs and, and so forth. So then I also have to make it something they can memorize in one week. Yes. So you're turning their whole bodies into instruments. Yeah, I think so. Oh, they'll have a blast with that. I think so. Yeah. They'd probably have more fun if I let them hit their neighbor, but I, I think <laughs> probably to yourselves, kids. <laughs> but we do have to have limits. We, <laughs> we do have, have to have limits. limits. That's right. So just to finish up, what advice do you have to beginning composers, someone starting out right now? For the last five years of my teaching career, I I became part of the composition faculty too, which was fun. So if somebody was particularly interested in composing for voices, my colleagues would send them to me and they'd study for a semester. And I had a lot of fun with that. And I gave the same advice pretty uniformly. And that was that uh, what I saw a lot of times would be that, uh, well, two things really, that there were too many ideas in a three-minute piece um, so that it didn't really hold together. There was no repetition of an older idea. It was idea after idea Mm. after idea and was a little bit of a stream of Mm -hmm. consciousness kind of thing. And secondly, that the music should kind of stay in the same wheelhouse in terms of difficulty. So if on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being only the best professional choirs uh, could sing it and one being four-year-old unison singing, you know, if a piece is kind of perking along at about a four or a five, and then there are three measures that are level 10 difficulty, people are just going to trip and fall if it's all level 10, then we know that. If it's all level six, then we know that. But we kept, you know, getting, hey, this is a good idea, and there's another good idea, and this idea is really hard, and this idea is pretty simple. And so, you know, think of it as some kind of speech that has a beginning, middle, and end. So rhetoric would be one idea that I would give to people. Make sure your speech holds together. And then secondly, I would say that the world is changing pretty fast in terms of publishing. And there's an awful lot of self-publishing going on. And that's great. Um, 
But the old idea was you would send your music to a publisher and they would publish it or not according to whether they thought it was quality or if it fit in their catalog. But there was some kind of filter being applied. Mm-hmm. And right now there is a sort of a fire hose of music available at any, you know, at a store, on the web, through a, pub, uh, through a composer's mm-hmm. own website. It makes it hard for you to get found. Yes. And so I would say you have to be pragmatic about that and uh, say make some kind of a collaboration with some local group and say, hey, I could be your composer in residence for free and then learn how to write for that group. And then if there are other groups like that, whether it be a church choir or a civic chorus or a high school choir or something like that, you know, start to get a niche and then grow your niche. Mm -hmm. I would say don't try and be everything to all people right away or you will, nobody will find you. That is really smart advice. Yeah. I I wish we had done more teaching our students about the business of music. And then even the business of music that I've been in for 40 years is changing a lot. And it's hard for even an established person like myself to keep up. But for a new person, I would say specialize at least at first. Mm -hmm. Until you make a name for yourself and then you can branch out a bit. Yes. Yeah. Words of wisdom. Very good. (laughs) Now, my last question for you is the same question I ask everybody. If you could go back at the start of your career, um, back when you had hurt your knee in college, um, and you could do it all over again, knowing then what you know now, would you make the same choice? I would do it in a heartbeat. It has been a wonderful ride and nothing worked out quite the way I thought it would, but uh, that was the delightful surprise of it all. I love it. Well, thank you for choosing that. Thank you for continuing on with music and and writing so much beautiful choir music for so many different people. Mm. Um, And thank you. Thank you for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm, uh, honored to be asked. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and produced by Russ Wilkes. A very special thanks to Brad Ellingbow for sharing his time, his stories, and advice with us today. The music you have heard throughout today's episode was composed by Brad and has been shared with you with his permission. You have heard Psalm 47, A Song for Cecilia, Be Music Night, and How Can I Keep From Singing. If you would like to hear more of his music, you can find out more information about him on his website, bradleyellingbow.com. As you heard in our interview, he will be the festival resident composer at the Pro Musica International Choral Festival, which, like many things lately, has been put on hold due to COVID-19. But if all goes well, it will be back on schedule for the summer of 2021. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any future conversations. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. If there is a topic you'd like to discuss, come and chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. Thanks so much.